0: Hello, Christ Community Church. I'm glad you've joined us for our time of reflection on Good Friday. My name is Matt. I'm the youth director here at Christ Community. And um, as we begin, you can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 23. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 56 as we behold our crucified King today. And as we do so, we are reflecting on the deepest depths of Christ's humiliation for us. We are seeing that Jesus was willing in love to go all the way down to the bottom for our redemption, that He will be perfectly faithful till the end, that we who, in our sin, have broken relationship with God and deserve to be forsaken and condemned and to die in our sin, Jesus will not give up on us, but He comes in our place. He is perfectly obedient. He is faithful and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And He will do all of this to draw us back near to God, to restore our relationship with the Lord, to cancel the record of our trespasses, to give us His righteousness, and to pour His love upon us, recreating that relationship. And so the key truth we're going to see as we reflect on our King crucified, is that because Jesus is the crucified King, we get to mourn our sin and draw near to Him in faith. Let me read that again. Because Jesus is the crucified King, we get to mourn our sin and draw near to Him in faith. So let's see that in God's Word. This is Luke 23 verses 26 through 56. Hear God's word for us today. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people, and of women who were mourning, lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, The days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we reflect on Jesus' death on the cross, we're going to uh, do it in two parts. And the first part is Luke 23, verses 26 through 31, where we see the call to mourn our sin. Now, remember back in, in verse 25, in, uh, in chapter 23, right before this part of the story, Pilate had handed Jesus over into the hands of the Jewish leaders and people who had gathered before Pilate to hear his verdict. And they demanded, crucify, crucify him. Give us Jesus to crucify and set Barabbas free. So Pilate had done this. <clears throat> and so they lead him away. And along the way, as they're marching their way over to the place called the skull, where they will crucify Jesus, two things happen. The first thing that happens is they compel one Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross. Now Cyrene was a, a town in the Roman Empire in northern Africa located in present-day Libya. Simon was most likely a Jew of the Diaspora. The Diaspora Jews were the Jews who were no longer in the land of Israel but had been scattered throughout the various empires over time. And Simon was most likely in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And So there he was coming in from the country And this this crowd of people, they compel him and they say, you, you carry the cross. And they made him carry Jesus' cross because Jesus had been beaten and flogged. He would have been stumbling and staggering along. And the people who are going to crucify him, they want to make sure he dies good and proper up on the cross as an example of what they think about him. They don't want him to die under the weight of the cross on the way there. And so they put the cross on Simon's shoulder and say, you carry it and recognize, Luke doesn't go into much detail with Simon, but Simon would have had a front row seat to the weight of his own sin and to the weight of all God's people's sins. He would have, as he followed Jesus, carrying that splintery piece of wood on his shoulder, he would have recognized he is doing this for God's people. We know from Mark's Gospel, for example, that Simon was the father of Rufus and Alexander and that the three of them became believers. And so Simon would have looked back at this with eyes of faith and recognized what Jesus was doing to set God's people free from condemnation. Now, in addition to Simon, as they continue along, a crowd of people begin to follow behind this band as they lead Jesus away. And in that crowd, there's a group of women. And these women begin to mourn and lament for Jesus. These are not, by the way, the women who follow Jesus from Galilee that we'll see later on in the story. These are women from Jerusalem. And whereas our culture today, we are novices when it comes to lamentation. It's it's not natural to us. But in ancient Israel, lamentation was part of, of their culture. They knew that when something lamentable happened, you would raise your voice and you would let your tears fall. And that's what these women are doing. They rightly recognize that something wrong is happening here. Jesus was no ordinary criminal. They may not have been at the trial, but as they look at this, they see something lamentable is happening. And so they raise their voices and they let their tears fall for Jesus. And yet, look at how Jesus responds. He turns to them. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, which was a a phrase used sometimes in the prophets to speak directly to the women of Jerusalem, but to the entire city as well. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Jesus is reversing their expectations. This would have caught them off guard. He is bleeding out. He's being led away to die. And yet he's saying, don't weep for me, weep for you. Well, why would he do that? Well, he's doing that because Jesus sees something that no one else has yet seen. In verse 29, He's talking about coming days when the people will speak an anti-blessing of sorts, where they will say, Blessed is the womb that is barren. Whereas ordinarily, you would bless the womb that has born life, that has had children. And barrenness would be seen as a sign of, of, of curse or something to lament. And He even says that people will go as far as to ask the mountains, the hills to fall on them and crush them. This is a bleak picture, so what is Jesus talking about? Well, remember, when we began our sermon series in Luke 19, we saw Jesus Himself weep over Jerusalem. He wept over them because He knew that in their rebellion, in their unbelief, in their hardness of heart, they were going to reject Him. They were going to do what they were doing this very moment and lead Him away to be killed. And although this was part of God's sovereign plan our, for our redemption, judgment too would fall on the city that rejected their King. And in 70 A.D. Jerusalem would be besieged by Rome, and in God's providence, Rome would sack the city and lay it to waste. That's what Jesus has in mind when He's telling these women to weep for themselves and for their children. And That's why He would say something where it would would be better for people not to have children, to watch them suffer the agony of the judgment that was coming. And This helps us then explain Jesus' point in verse 31 when He talks about the green wood and the dry wood. If you've ever tried to make a fire, you know it you you can't really easily light green wood on fire. It will burn, but it takes some doing. And his point is that he is the green wood. And if they see him suffering judgment in this way, when they can recognize he is righteous, then how much more will the city that has made itself dry and brittle through its sin and unbelief be ready to go up in flames of judgment when that day of the Lord and that day of judgment arrives on it in 70 AD? And so Jesus tells them, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. And notice, he's not saying, you know, be happy, go lucky, it's all going to turn out okay, this is all part of God's plan. He is saying, weep, but weep for the right things. Weep for your own sin. He recognizes and he's telling them, my death is not a tragedy, because a tragedy has a sad ending. But his death will end with the resurrection. It will end with our redemption. And Jesus is telling them, the tragedy will be for you to see these things. For you to see me and yet for you to miss the point. The only tragedies are the stories that end apart from Christ. And so Jesus invites them to not mourn Him, but to mourn their own sin, so that then they could turn to Jesus in faith. It may be too late for the city, but it was not too late for these individuals. And as we reflect on that, we we can recognize we often make a similar mistake. We would much rather signal our outrage and our dismay about the way of the world and things that go wrong in the world, but we don't want to mourn our own sin. We would rather talk about what's wrong in the church at large than talk about what's wrong in our own hearts, and our own lives. <clears throat> and yet Jesus' point here is, He's saying, what's the point of talking about how much other people need Him when we won't feel our own need for Him? Why bother calling out the way of the culture and the way of the world and its waywardness when we refuse to follow our Savior in the way of the cross? and mourn our own sin. This is why Jesus invites them, and by extension, invites us to mourn our own sin. And so as we reflect on these things, I encourage you take time today and tomorrow as you prepare to celebrate the resurrection on Sunday and mourn your sin. And as you do so, if the Spirit brings things to mind where you need to repent or pursue reconciliation, then, then do that. And the place for many of us where we may need to begin to mourn our sin is simply by mourning the fact that we don't ever really mourn our sin. To mourn the fact that so many of us commodify our forgiveness in Christ. We sometimes treat Jesus like He's this religious booster shot. We live as if He saves us from sin so that we can just go back to living life normally and not ever have to be troubled or bothered by the symptoms of our sin. But we need to remember that if we believe in Jesus, then we have a relationship with God, with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We don't just have abstract forgiveness, we have restoration and reconciliation with the Lord God Himself. So we don't just get injected with a shot of religious ideas, but we get brought back into relationship and we receive by the power of the Spirit, eyes that see and hearts that feel the weight of our sin. When we become Christians and we consider our sin, we can finally see how significant and how weighty that sin is because we recognize that every act of sin is an act of infidelity. Sin is never no big deal. Sin is always personal. It is us rejecting that relationship, us saying, I'd rather have this lesser thing than your love, Lord. And so when Jesus draws us near, He invites us to mourn our sin so that we might recognize how bad it is and yet how great His love is in turn, that He would die for a faithless bride, to bring her home, to wash her with the water of His Word and His love, to make her pure for Himself. So that's why we get to mourn our sin, even when we're already Christians. It's not this call to artificially stir up emotion, but it's a call to be still. Don't commodify this, but recognize the weight, not just of your sin, but the grandeur and the weight of glory of Jesus' love for you as He went to the cross. Now, as we consider that, we'll look back now at the text, picking up in verse 32 and going on to the end. And we see here that the call to mourn our sin also is always coupled with the call to draw near to Jesus, not in despair, but in faith. In verses 32 and 33, we arrive with the band at the place called The Skull. The band of people bringing Jesus, they bring Him here with the two other criminals and they crucify the three of them. One criminal on Jesus' right and one on His left. And we see here that Isaiah 53, 12 is fulfilled, just as Jesus said back in Luke 22, verse 37, that He would be numbered with the transgressors. We see that happening right here. He is numbered with these two criminals. And yet, as we heard that verse read for us in our Old Testament reading earlier, that verse goes on. Jesus was not only numbered with the transgressors, but then as we read in Isaiah 53, He makes intercession. And we see him do that when he prays this prayer that sets the stage for everything that happens next. He says, Father, forgive them, verse 34, for they know not what they do. This is Jesus' heart in this moment, even in the agony of his suffering, in the depths of his humiliation as he is hanging naked, bleeding out on the cross, and straining to breathe beneath the weight of his own body. Notice what he focuses on not getting through to the end of this suffering. But He focuses on the work that the Father entrusted to His hand. He focuses on our redemption. He focuses on what He will do to restore our relationship to God. And we know that even as He takes on the condemnation we deserve, and yet intercedes for sinners like us, we know that this prayer bore fruit. That as He is praying over these soldiers, and this, this group of the Jewish people who have rejected Him, fruit will be born. Even in this own story, one single soldier turns and praises God. And we know from the book of Acts another centurion will turn in faith. We know that people from Israel, from Jerusalem, on Pentecost will turn and believe. We know even in Acts chapter six, uh, 6, verse 7, some of the high priests will believe. And so, Jesus' prayer will bear fruit. And as that prayer sets the stage for what comes next, a lot will happen very quickly in Luke's narrative. He's going to mention several people and note the way that they all respond to Jesus up on the cross. And what we want to do is look at the way that Luke structures this. It's very organized, and he's making a point for us. There are two lines of people here. At the head of both lines will be one of the two criminals. And the first line will be all the people who are blinded by their pride and reject Jesus and scoff at Him, and don't see what's going on. They miss the point. And yet the second line of people will be all those who draw near to the crucified King in faith, And receive the work that He is doing on the cross. And so we want to look at these two lines and then after we do that we'll close by beholding our crucified King in the moment of His death. So in verse 35 Luke mentions first the crowd of the people and they don't officially respond yet. They're just watching what's happening. Luke leaves them there, we will return to them in a moment, but he contrasts the people with their leaders. The leaders of Israel are the first to respond to Jesus on the cross and these men who knew the Word of God better than anybody else present there except for Jesus, notice how they respond. They respond with mocking and scoffing. These are the people who should have known best, but they react the worst. Remember that hours before this, as we saw in our sermon this past Sunday, these men heard from Jesus. They looked Him in the eye as He told them that they would see Him seated at the Father's right hand as the Son of Man, And yet, to their eyes, all they see is Jesus bleeding out with two criminals on either side of Him. And so they say, Yeah, we we don't see it, Jesus. And so they mock Him, and they scoff Him, and they taunt Him, and they test Him, and they say, Alrighty then, if you really are the Christ, if you're God's chosen one, come on down from that cross and show us your crown. Save yourself. And then their mocking gives way to other mocking. And after them, the soldiers are the second group of people to mock Jesus. And in their minds, they may not view Jesus as the Christ or the Chosen One of God. They're not thinking about it religiously. They just look at Him as someone who claimed to be a king. And they think, well, this is a real sorry excuse for a king. In their minds, as Roman soldiers, as agents of the glorious empire, kings are supposed to lead armies. Kings are supposed to win battles. Kings are supposed to to rule empires. And so when they see this supposed king dying the death of a common criminal, a death that they brought out, they think this is no king. And so they mock him. They offer him sour wine, which was cheap wine mixed with vinegar that soldiers would often drink. A king would never be caught dead drinking this wine. To put it in perspective, imagine having the CEO of your company over for dinner and you served him or her boxed wine in a plastic cup and you, you filled it up right in front of them. You know, that would be below their dignity and their station. It would be below the significance of that meal. That's what they're doing by giving Jesus this type of wine. They're mocking him. They don't see a king, they see a criminal. And yet despite their mockery, notice how Luke points out in verse 38 that there was an inscription over Jesus, and it says the truth. This is the King of the Jews. In all the mockery, the truth remains. Jesus really is king, though no one has eyes to see it yet. And then lastly, in this first line of people who are blinded by pride, we have the first criminal. And this man mocks Jesus, and like the Jewish leaders and the soldiers, he mocks Jesus and says, If you're the Christ, save yourself. But this man goes further, and he attacks the very heart of Jesus. This is why your Bible may have a footnote on verse 39 saying that it's not just that he railed against Jesus, but it could also be translated that he blasphemes against Jesus. He is mocking Jesus' very character, because he doesn't just want Jesus to save himself. He says, If you're the Christ, save yourself and save us. What are you doing? Get us off this cross. In this man's mind, if Jesus won't save the three of them right then and there in that moment, then what good is he? The man says, no good. He has no use for suffering Christ. And so notice what has happened thus far in the story. The people who knew the most scripture, who should have known best, acted the worst and they acted the worst first. And then you have the soldiers who join in the mockery And then you have this criminal, you have a sinner who thinks that Jesus is too weak and doesn't care enough to do anything to save sinners. And as we also hear here three times, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. This is an echo from way back earlier in Luke's gospel when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness and three times said, take a shortcut, bypass the cross, go directly to the crown. And Jesus was faithful then, and he is faithful now. He endures his mockery, and he knows that, no, the cross is the way to the crown. And as these taunts fall on him, they only stop when the second criminal speaks up. And it turns out then that the man that we would then least expect to get it right in this part of the story gets it right first. The other criminal is the first one in this story to draw near to Jesus in faith. And look at how he does this. Look in verse 40. He turns to the the first criminal and he rebukes him. He says, don't you fear God? Don't you recognize you and I deserve this condemnation? We are here justly. But this man that you're making fun of and mocking and blaspheming, this man's done nothing wrong. And so he silences the taunts. And then he turns to Jesus. And he says, remember me in your kingdom. And recognize the weight of this. If ever there was somebody in the history of the world who did not, as Hebrews 2 talks about, see all things in subjection to Jesus, it was this man. This man is up close and personal. This man is listening to Jesus gasp for air as they are all pulling themselves up on the cross just so they can breathe. This man, if he looked by sight, he would have seen someone dying, not a king. And yet, He is beholding Jesus with eyes of faith. He sees that Jesus is indeed the crucified King. The world may look and see Jesus and mock Him and think He's crushed by their hand and that Satan and darkness has won. But this man recognized, no, Jesus will receive His crown. He will receive His kingdom. And so this humble, repentant criminal asked in faith only to be remembered by Jesus. He doesn't want His circumstances changed. He wants Jesus Himself it's a beautiful picture of faith. Faith is embracing Christ, drawing near to Him. It's not a means to an end, it's, it's how we receive Jesus and all that He offers to us, which is Himself. And the beautiful thing we see here is that as this man wants to be with Jesus, Jesus wants to be with this man. And He says to him, something that I'm sure this man didn't even imagine Jesus to say it was so good. Jesus says, this day you will be with me in paradise. Beautifully, we see then the heart of Christ for repentant sinners as they come to Him in faith. And we'll see in a moment that Jesus will then, after this, He will go on and die and breathe His last. We're going to come back to that. We're going to save the best for last. We want to keep seeing Luke's pattern though of people responding to Jesus. After this criminal, the first to draw near to Jesus in faith, if you jump down to verse 47, look at the Centurion. Now, recognize as a centurion, this man was the leader of the Roman soldiers who were executing Jesus in this moment. This man was an agent of the empire. He had seen bloodshed. He would have been hardened to it, callous to it. He would have watched the life drain from countless pairs of eyes. And yet, as he's watching Jesus die, something happens. And his heart is softened and he's given eyes of faith. And when he sees Jesus die, he praises God. Luke has used this word for people worshiping God all throughout his gospel. This man turns and worships and he recognizes and professes Jesus' innocence, his righteousness. He recognizes that this was no common criminal. He may not have the full theology, but he knows that this man who was rejected by his own people for some reason was indeed the righteous one. And so he draws near in faith. And then after him, down in verse 50... Luke introduces one more person who has a big response to Jesus here and it's Joseph of Arimathea. And Luke is clear, Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was one of Israel's religious leaders. And yet, unlike all the rest, he did not join in their wicked plot against Jesus. He was looking for the kingdom of God and he may have believed in Jesus but hadn't yet kind of come out of the shadows and made that public knowledge. And yet now, as he has watched Jesus die, He leaves the shadows and he makes his faith known. He draws near to Jesus. He is not ashamed. And he is the one who goes to Pilate and asks for Jesus' body. And remember, Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea, which means Pilate is the head honcho in that area. For for Joseph to go to him would mean that Joseph himself was a man of status. Not anyone could just waltz up to Pilate and have audience with him and ask a question like this. And so Joseph is laying aside his own reputation. When this gets out, The rest of the Jewish leaders will probably turn on him, because he is associating himself with Jesus. But he does it. He draws near in faith, and he arranges for Jesus' burial. And in that way, he winds up fulfilling Isaiah 53 verse 9. We're talking about Jesus' grave, the suffering servant's grave, being made among the rich. And Joseph would have been a man of wealth and status. And he takes Jesus to a new tomb cut in the rock, and he lays him to rest there. And the fact that it's a new tomb, that no one else was there was significant because tombs in that day tended to have multiple people laid to rest in them over time. But this is a new tomb. Jesus is the only one there, which is significant for what will happen in three days. And so notice what happened then. Luke's pattern was you had the leaders of Israel reject and mock Jesus in pride first, then the soldiers mock, then a criminal mocks, and yet then the patterns inverted. And the first to draw near in faith is a criminal. And then a soldier draws near in faith. And then lastly, a religious leader draws near in faith. Luke's point is, how will we respond to the one we behold up on the cross? And you may have noticed, looking back at verses 48 and 49, there were a couple of people we didn't quite touch on yet. First, there's the crowd. Remember, Luke left them there watching everything happen in verse 35. And then we come here and we see they watch the spectacle happen, and they go home mourning, beating their breasts. And the question that Jesus, and the the invitation that Jesus offered the women, extended to them, would they mourn the spectacle, or would they mourn their own sin and repent and draw near to Jesus in faith? Luke leaves that hanging there for us. But then, in verse 49, he talks about the women who had followed Jesus with his acquaintances from Galilee. And these women follow Joseph to the tomb. They know exactly where they will need to go on the day after Sabbath to go and give Jesus a proper burial treatment. They will prepare their spices and their ointments and then they rest on the Sabbath. And as they rested, they would have reflected on everything they just saw. And that's an invitation for you and me as we prepare for the Lord's day, for Sunday, for Easter. Take time and be still and behold the crucified King. And as you think about the two lines of people we saw here, ask yourself and ask the spirit to show you, are you drawing near to Jesus in faith? And where might pride be blinding you to your need for Jesus? As we saw with the first line of people, it is very easy for pride to creep in and to blind us to the true meaning of what happened on the cross. To make us think, well, if Jesus isn't just going to save me right now in terms of changing my circumstances, then what good is he? And yet we want to be like that repentant criminal. We want to draw near in faith. We want to behold him and we want to be known by him so as we think about that, it is fitting then to close with the best part and to go and behold our King Himself in verse 44. So let's look back there, you see Luke notes that from noon, that is the 6th hour until 3 o'clock, the ninth hour, darkness consumed the sun, it's very light failed. And because of the way the lunar calendar worked with Passover and its timing, this was not a solar eclipse, this was supernatural darkness. Remember that Jesus had told His captors when they came for Him in Gethsemane that this was their hour and the power of darkness. And now darkness descends. And at the same time, darkness in the Old Testament, in this way, is often seen as a sign of God's judgment, condemnation, forsakenness. And that is what is falling upon Jesus on the cross. He's not just dying a physical death, but He is enduring the spiritual agony of condemnation and forsakenness that we deserve because of the way we've rejected the Lord in our sin and broken that relationship, and Jesus now experiences that agony, that suffering, that separation on the cross. And yet Luke is very quick to show us the point. The point is that as the darkness descended, then, as Jesus endures that condemnation, what happens is the veil in the temple is torn. This is the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, where only the High Priest, but once a year, after elaborate sacrifices, could go into God's presence. And yet now, because Jesus has taken on the condemnation our sin deserves, He has flung wide open the doors so that all who draw near to Him in faith can draw near to the Lord in restored relationship. And it is then when that happens, when His work on the cross is finished, Jesus then prays Psalm 31 verse five, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit In faith, he trusts his Father to deliver him through death. He knows he's about to die. He knows he'll be in the grave for three days, but he trusts the Father to by the power of the Spirit to raise him again in three days. And so as we look forward to that, let us use this time before we celebrate the resurrection on Sunday and let us draw near to our God in faith. Let us recognize that our spirits are in the hands of Jesus and that he restores that relationship and makes all things new because of what we have beheld Him doing here on the cross as our crucified King. So let us turn to Him in prayer, and then we'll close with a few songs. Lord Jesus, we thank You. We thank You that You would go and You would endure the condemnation, the wrath, the forsakenness, the isolation, the darkness that we deserve in our sin. Lord, we are so casual. We commodify even Your forgiveness, even the work on Your cross. We can commodify it and forget that it is to bring us back into relationship that you did all of this. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to mourn our sin. May we not be too quick to really sit and behold and recognize and feel what this means. And help us to draw near to you in faith as we reflect on who you are, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we continue to reflect, would you join us now in two more songs before we close our time together.